In his final State of the Union address, President Obama asked Vice President Biden to head up the cancer moonshot to end cancer as we know it. Our next guest, Greg Simon, was named the executive director of this initiative, leading a team of professionals to seek out unprecedented advances in cancer prevention, diagnosis, and treatment. Greg's work supported the passage of the 21st Century Cures Act on December 7, 2016, providing $1.8 billion for the cancer moonshot over the next seven years. So Vice President Biden, uh, when he lost his son, decided not to run for president. And he told Obama, the one thing I regret about not running for president is I wish I could have been president when we changed the face of cancer. So Obama then declared that we were going to do this moonshot to double the rate of progress. And he asked Biden to do it. In this fascinating discussion, Greg explains the steps necessary to make a moonshot initiative succeed by harnessing the resources of government, academia, nonprofits, and the private sector in the fight against cancer. Greg illuminates how we can all bring together diverse groups of people to create movements that will solve the world's biggest problems. Please enjoy our conversation with Greg Simon. You're listening to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us at membership at ivy.com. This episode of the Ivy Podcast is brought to you by 8, maker of the 8 Smart Bed. Sleeping is smart. So is a bed that tells you exactly how well you slept last night. The 8 Smart Bed is a four-layer, high-density foam mattress paired with a smart cover that goes on the mattress just like a fitted sheet. This nearly invisible technology layer has multiple sensors that measure the quality of your sleep and deliver a daily sleep report each morning through the 8 app. The 8 cover also has a bed warming feature that warms each side of the bed individually to accommodate different sleeping temperatures. And 8 connects to almost any Wi-Fi enabled device in your house. Coffee makers, blinds, smart lights. Did we mention bed warming? Ivy Podcast listeners get $100 off any mattress purchase by entering the promo code IVY at checkout. Visit www.8sleep.com forward slash IVY to start sleeping smarter today. So let's start out with the, the first point, which is how did the initiative get started? And when you first started it, what were you thinking about as the primary objective for this initiative? Well, first, uh, thank you all for being here. I was wondering when I found out about this, what I was going to say to a group of people in their 20s and 30s, because usually I'm talking to people much older than that, who are very sober. <laughs> <laughs> and I, when I got to the reception, I thought, okay, what am I going to say to a group of people in their 20s and 30s who've been drinking for an hour? <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, you used to be in a band. Figure it out. <laughs> so... <clears throat> How did the initiative begin? Uh, the initiative started without me when uh, Joe Biden lost his son, Bo, to brain cancer. Uh, the cancer he had was, is an incurable, awful thing. There are people who live several years, but most people don't. Um, I was diagnosed with leukemia in June of uh, 2014, a month or so after a dear friend of mine who was 40 was diagnosed with glioblastoma. And when I finished my chemo in January of 2016, after six months of chemo, she died. So I picked the right cancer because there are about a dozen treatments for CLL leukemia. There's nothing for glioblastoma. And one of the reasons is your brain is the most protected organ in the world. You can't get to it with average medicine. You can't get through the so-called blood-brain barrier. So Vice President Biden, uh, when he lost his son, 
decided not to run for president. And he told Obama, the one thing I regret about not running for president is I wish I could have been president when we changed the face of cancer. So Obama then declared that we were going to do this moonshot to double the rate of progress. And he asked Biden to do it. Now, I'm walking down the street in New York where I was commuting for the last seven years for business, and in this case, my own business, and I get a phone call. Can you come see Mr. Biden tomorrow morning? He wants to talk to you about the cancer moonshot. And I told this young guy on the phone, well, I'm in New York, it's eight o'clock at night, number two, I'm supposed to see my leukemia doctor tomorrow. And they didn't know I'd had leukemia, so he said, well, we'll set it up next week. And I hung up the phone and I said to myself, what, am I an idiot? <laughs> so, don't answer, my daughter's here, do not answer that. And um, so I called my doctor, paged him, now it's like 9.30 in New York. He said, what's up? I said, listen, I just got this call. Vice President Biden wants me to go down and talk to him about this cancer moonshot thing, but I have an appointment with you in the morning. He said, what are you, an idiot? <laughs> He said, you can see me any day. Go, go, go. So I, I came to Washington. I'd never met Biden before. His chief of staff I worked with in the Clinton administration many years ago. And his chief of staff said, here's the deal. We need somebody who understands science research community, which I had been on the science committee for years and I understood. We need somebody who understands cancer politics. I used to run a nonprofit that dealt with a lot of different nonprofits, so I understood that. And we need somebody who's been in the White House before because we don't have time to train them. And it is a different environment as you are learning if you read the paper. Um, so I said, mm, darn, that looks like me. As a friend of mine said, it seems like your entire life has led you to this moment. And I said, that sounds like my tombstone. <laughs> That's come up with a different statement. So. Here's the problem though, and this is the educational moment. What do you do? So I got hired, I'm there. It's myself and a woman named Danielle Carnival, who's phenomenal, who's a neuroscience PhD and had been at the White House for six years running STEM education in women in tech. And it's the two of us, and then we're supposed to run the moonshot, which is comprised of 20 government agencies. And we've got nine or 10 months to do it. What do you do? What do you do? Well, there are two things you do. One, hire people smarter than you as fast as you can. And in the White House, that takes a while, right? Have you ever smoked marijuana? Well, there goes 30% of that. <laughs> um, uh, so it's not that easy. <clears throat> so you hire the smartest people you can, which I did. People I've worked with before, people from the National Cancer Institute, people from the NIH. The second thing you have to do, and this is really critical in life, is ask the right question. It's really important to ask the right question. My favorite historian was somebody who said, you know, facts never speak for themselves. You have to ask questions. And you have to ask the right question, and you know it's the right question if it leads to an answer that leads to a better question. If you ask a question that leads you to a dead end, you're asking the wrong question. And that was the key. And that's what I spent most of my time thinking about, was what is the question that I need to ask 20 bureaucrats representing 20 agencies that are going to come in and meet with me next week? And I'll leave that suspense there for a minute. That's a great story and a great introduction to uh, how it got off the ground. And I think as you, you listen to that, that answer and how it got started, you realize what an uphill battle it is to take all of this grant money and all these agencies and pull them together. And so when we were talking earlier, you mentioned that a big part of what you saw the, the uh, moonshot was as, as a connector yeah. and as a facilitator of bringing groups together. And I, and I think that would be kind of like the next place that maybe we should talk a little bit about is how, how you saw that happening. Actually, I'll tell you that my impression for the moonshot going into it was that you would be sort of a granting agency and you would pull together money and give out grants to people to facilitate research and that's not what you guys do. So maybe, uh, maybe other people have the same impression. I think they'd be interested in hearing about that. Right. Everybody always thinks it's about money or sex, but in this case, it's not. <laughs> and um, we were not about money because if money were the answer, we'd have the answer. 
We spend a lot of money. It's not money. It's culture. It's culture. It's the way we do what we do. So the I learned this in 2003. I left my last company because Mike Milken, the head of Milken Institute, had asked me to start a nonprofit called Faster Cures, which for the slow among you means curing things faster. <laughs> and to do that, you have to change the way people do things. And when I pulled a group of nonprofits from a variety of diseases together for a three-day retreat in Lake Tahoe, and the whole point of the meeting was, what is your problem? What is holding you back in Alzheimer's and ALS and lupus and cancers of all kinds? What's holding you back? And after three days, everybody had the same answer. Culture. It wasn't money. It wasn't science. It wasn't technology. It was the disconnect between our academic system and what we need to do to cure diseases. It was the fact that the NIH mission is to study biology, not to cure anything. It was the fact that investors don't invest in risky early stage stuff, so we lose a lot of ideas before we ever try them. Philanthropists are always told, oh, your gift will make the difference and we'll, we're right there, we're, boy. And that's never true. And the philanthropists say, I'm not gonna tell you what to do if I give you a lot of money, and that's never true. So it's like dating. And the philanthropists and the foundations lie to each other at the beginning and they spend a lot of happy time. And then after a while you find out they don't have a job, they're living with their mother. And that happens over and over and over, it's a problem. So, so the culture here was the same thing. So here's the question I asked them. I saw these PowerPoints, how do you improve your productivity. The goal of the moonshot, this is critical, wasn't more money, although we got more money. The goal was double the rate of progress. How do we get 10 years of progress in five years? Change the way we do things. So I got these PowerPoints that were done before I got there, and it said, what is your goal in the moonshot? And the agency would say, we're going, right now we have this many people in clinical trials, we're gonna get 10% more. Now, in what universe is 10% more than twice as many, right? Sounds like a math quiz. 10% more is twice as many. How many people are at the party? That's not the question. The question was, what, why are you thinking that way? Well, they're thinking that way because their life is decided by boxes of programs and boxes of budget dollars and performance goals, and they're tired. They've been there eight years. And oh my God, now we've got to cure cancer in our last nine months. They were not excited. They were the opposite of excited. They were dreading it. So here's the question I asked them. Throw away everything you've sent me so far. Stop talking to me about programs and program budgets. And I want you to do two things. Number one, figure out where you as an agency, whether you're NASA, the National Endowment for the Arts, or the National Cancer Institute, and they were all there, where do you touch patients in their journey in cancer? From prevention, through detection, diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. Where do you touch them? And what impact are you making today? That's the first question. If you don't know that, then nothing else can happen. Secondly, figure out how you're going to double the impact you're having on those ways in half the time. And while you're at it, find somebody around the room you've never worked with and work with That's what they did. They went, mm -hmm. oh, I've never, am I being paid to do that? Am I, can he ask me to do that? And guess what? They came back very excited about it. Because when they asked the people that worked for them to think that way, they were really eager to think that way. Because they're the people who do touch the people at the VA, at the NASA Radiation Laboratory, at the Commerce Department's Public Health and Weather and Global Health Monitoring, and the Patent Office that has to review cancer patents. And they all came back with big ideas, and they all started partnering, and it was really cool. It was really cool because I could see them changing the way they were thinking because they had never been asked that question. And that was where we got things going. And we asked another group of people to put together the science priorities for new money, 
because we wanted to get new money for new priorities, not the old stuff. And we asked for a billion, we got 1.8 billion from a Republican Congress in the last day of the session for an outgoing Democratic president. Now think about that. We got $1.8 billion for the priority of the guy they hated for eight years. And we got a total of $6.3 billion, including the cancer money, for the brain project of Obama, the personalized medicine program of Obama, and the opioid addiction program of everybody in the last days of the conference. So when the Trump budget comes out and says we want to cut the NCI budget, we want to cut the NIH budget, it's not going to happen. The Republicans are the ones who aren't going to let it happen. They're the ones who put the money up for the moonshine. They just finished authorizing and appropriating the second $300 million down payment. So that's happening. That will continue to happen. But as we go, we'll get into more detail. But asking the right question at the beginning changed everything. And interestingly enough, the person who was most skeptical at the beginning and then was most excited at the end is currently the Secretary of the Veterans Affairs Department, the largest hospital in the world, who said to me halfway through all this that when we announced the project that they're doing with IBM Watson and Walter Reed, which I'll tell you about later, he said it was the first good press the VA has ever gotten. <laughs> Think about that. I was proclaimed. I mean, it was like you're working in the world's biggest hospital and you can't get anybody to like you. This was their first big, good shot. You know, it's a, it's a lot of pressure to be a moderator when you have somebody that's, that's uh, saying you ought to ask good questions. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, one of the things that I wanted to add, I think that well, we had, when we were talking also, you had mentioned about uh, how this uh, process of bringing groups together actually manifested itself in Bloodback. Yes. Which is a very interesting website. I, I would recommend you to go take a look at it and look at how that's come together. But I think the uh, audience would be interested in knowing about how you pulled that together because it's a very diverse group of organizations that are working on collecting this data and working on, on accelerating the cancer process. And I think that, that, that's a, a tremendous accomplishment. I think they are interested in hearing about that. So one of the people I brought in, because a couple of people said, got to bring this guy in. He's really smart. He's a little weird. But he's really smart and he knows everything going on at the National Cancer Institute was my technology guy and I'm not making this up you could not ask him any question of any kind where the answer didn't begin with data and I don't mean like the data I mean the word data like how was your weekend Did you get lucky data is coming in like you did not get lucky. and I'm like Jared, Jared let me back up how was your weekend? Data, I mean, it's overwhelming, the data we're getting from Japan. This genomic database, it used to be, I'm like, okay, okay, you're gonna tell me about it, let's sit down. So data, for my friend Jerry, is, you know, terabytes and whatever's above that, petabytes, whatever, twabs, um, that, that are all proteogenomic stuff that people wanna look at. Jerry picked, the 14,000 people that were in the cancer genome atlas where we sequenced the cancers of 14,000 people. He picked them. Those, that database is now at a database in Chicago at the Genomic Data Commons at the University of Chicago. Raw genomic data, which now has 32,000 people's data, that database since last May when we launched it has been accessed 80 million million times. Think about that. People want to look at this stuff. So a lot of discussion about liquid biopsies. Can we determine that you're going to get cancer by looking at your blood instead of taking a biopsy from your breast, your lung, your liver, which is really painful, your bone marrow, which is not as bad as I thought it would be, uh, but it's still not fun, but it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. Um, uh, there are two kind of medical procedures. Not as bad as you thought it would be, and everything else. Um, uh, but um, what we decided to do was, well, how do we get this started? Well, one day we're in a meeting, and there's people around the table, and their deputies are around the wall. And a guy at the wall, a colonel in the army, 
says, uh, Mr. Simon, they always called me Mr. Simon, I could not stop him. And he said, by the way, another thing to remember, whenever anybody says, by the way, pay attention. They're usually understating it. When I found out I had leukemia, I was getting off an airplane, I called my doctor, because I had had a physical and I hadn't heard the results four days ago. And he said, oh, glad you called. Think about that for a minute. Glad you called. Your PSA score is good, your cholesterol is great, but by the way, you have leukemia. And I'm getting off the plane and I'm like, by the way, I have leukemia? And I'm calling you? Right? So this guy raises his hand and says, by the way, We've been taking blood samples on soldiers every two years to test them for HIV AIDS for the last 20 years. And we've got hundreds of thousands of blood serum samples stored. We can now see which ones of those soldiers got cancer and go back and start looking for precursors. And the whole table did one of these. You know, we're like, come up here, let's do that. And then DOD said, oh yeah, we've got several million tissue slides that we've never digitized or studied. Let's do that. Yeah, by the way, let's do that. My two favorite new phrases. So when we started looking at the blood samples, someone said, you know, there are all these companies that claim they're doing liquid biopsy and blood detection of cancer. Why don't we bring them all together and figure out how do you do that? You know, can you do that? The blood is affected every minute. Your blood just changed in the last hour dramatically. <laughs> and you know hormones change it if you have a diet coke you know you, you know if you have a diet coke if your body couldn't correct your ph as quickly as it does that the ph change from one diet coke would kill you that's how much your blood can change just from dietary stuff so the blood's hard to read because the words keep changing so we brought all these groups together private companies universities the fda the dod nci Walter Reed Hospital, the VA, and we put them in a room and they had three big meetings. And now they are a freestanding consortium. They hired one of my staffers who left the White House to be their executive director. It's called Blood Pack. Sounds like a vampire political committee. <laughs> um, uh, and they are working on an atlas. What is an atlas? An atlas is where you go to figure out where are the mountains, and where are the rivers, and where are the valleys, and what are the distances? It's a reference map, right? Well, we need a reference map for your blood. What circulating DNA means something? What remnant of a cancer cell means something? They don't all mean something. You have cancer cells all of the time. They're cleared out. So that's what they're doing. And I think that's really exciting. Someone came to me just today that does a really interesting test for lung cancer. They'd never heard of it. Now they're gonna be part of it. I mean, that's what it was all about, was changing the question. Instead of you trying to figure it out, and you trying to figure it out, and you trying to figure it out, what if you formed a consortium and you all tried to figure it out? And that's what they're doing. Great, thank you for that answer. Now this leads into my next question, which I have to go to my notes get this, which is uh, probably, uh, I would have to make it safe to say that 99% of people in this room are not alive when the Apollo program was up and running. But there's a new Apollo program, which is which is quite exciting, the Jerry, Apollo Jerry again. And so this is the, and this is a mouthful, Applied Proteogenomic Organizational Learning Outcomes. Yeah. And so. Where's uh, the second L? I, I, so I was looking for that. <laughs> I, I assume that somebody was, we're learning twice as much. That's right. right? Learning life. <laughs> And so the uh, the objective on this is to help oncologists identify effective drugs for their patients based on their proteogenomic profile. So anybody in here want to take a shot at what uh, proteogenomic means? And this this kind of leads to a two-pronged question for you. First is just a little bit about this program. It's kind of along the lines of what we learned from blood pack. And the second part is uh, when you get that by-the-way phone call and your, your biology maybe ended at uh, first or second year of university studies, and maybe for many of the general population in high school, what do you do when you're confronted with a term like proteogenomic? And right. what does that mean for, for the population? 
Well, for God's sakes, don't Google it. Uh, <laughs> do not Google it. Uh, so proteogenomics, um, it's like your genome is the Cleveland Cavaliers and your proteo is LeBron, okay? So the genomics are everything about your genes, but the proteomics are the ones that are doing something. So, <laughs> so it's, the, it's the ones that are making a protein or not making a protein that you care about, and you study that through the study of proteins, which is proteomics. So it's, you don't have to beat the people on the bench. You have to beat the people on the courts. And that's why just studying your genome isn't sufficient, because your genome is all of your genomic makeup, and not all of it's involved in everything. And the only way we know what is involved is to study your protein. And there are millions of variations there, so it's complicated. Um, so once again, Jerry said, hey, we've got this cool acronym, let's make a program. Um, and he got together with the DOD and the VA and the NCI and said, we can get people all over the world to submit proteogenomic data of known patients so we can identify what's meaningful in their disease and what's, what's responding, what distinguishes one person from another, do they respond, they don't respond, why? So when you hear proteogenomics, what it really means is who's on first? and not who's on the bench. And that is the critical thing. So, for instance, um, because I've been in nonprofit space and cancer and disease for a long time, I knew when I got my leukemia diagnosis that I could call some of the best doctors in the country. And they would immediately, and in fact, I was going to San Francisco to visit a doctor. So the first thing I did was go to his office and get another blood test. Totally freaked him out. And because he didn't know if I had leukemia that would kill me in a day or never kill me. And he wouldn't know until he did his own test. And it turned out I had the kind that was very treatable. But I have lost friends who have the kind of leukemia that if you get them on the start of your vacation, you don't come home. So it's complicated. But this is the, this is the you know, one of the questions that was asked about this group was, what can I ask you to do? There's no such thing as a cancer survivor who did it on their own. It's just not possible. People need people to get through cancer. They need people to get them to their treatment. They need people to talk to them and hold their hand. They need people to take care of them when they're feeling nauseous. They need people to answer the questions like what is proteogenomics and to talk to the doctor when the doctor is talking cancer. So one of the people I hired was someone who went to school with my kids, who became a nurse, who volunteered for Haiti after the earthquake, volunteered for Sierra Leone during the Ebola crisis. I tease her, I'm never getting on a plane with you. You're going to bad places. But she became a cancer care administrator. And what was her job? To explain what the doctor had just said after the doctor gave somebody a terminal diagnosis. So I hired her to be my patient engagement person because she knew the story. She knew what it meant. So it's important if you want to do anything in cancer and you're not a bench scientist and you're not a doctor, to be willing to reach out to people, children, teenagers, your parents, your parents' friends, your friends, and be willing to be there. It's not a question of money. It's not a question of science and training. It's to be there, whatever they need. Do they need ice chips in their mouth during the chemotherapy? Do they need someone just to talk to them while they're getting their blood drawn at four in the morning? Those are the things people need. Those are the things people need. And the, you know, people like me can call doctors and find out where's the best treatment, where's the best trial. That is a lousy network. That is an awful system. Call Greg is not the answer to our cancer problem, but it might be the answer to a particular person's cancer problem, right? And I do it, and I'm happy to do it, but it should be so much easier for the average person with no connections to be able to go online and find a clinical trial near them that they know is a good one, as easy as using Expedia to hook a plan. So guess what? 
we took the dashboard for how to find a cancer clinical trial, and we made it as easy as getting a ticket on Expedia. We hired a bunch of people like you, who were Digirati. They spent several months interviewing people. They recreated the NCI's website from being totally indecipherable to being a common word, local code place where you can put in, I have leukemia, I live in Bethesda, and they would tell you what trials are within two or 300 miles of you. And now they're doing it with the entire clinical trial site. This is 2017 and we took this long to do this? It's, it's crazy. So, you know, science can be overwhelming when you find out you have a disease, and then you have to find out now what mutation you have, and whether you have the right mutation. So if you were diagnosed as I was with leukemia, how many of you would want traditional chemotherapy versus the new shiny immunotherapy pill? How many would want chemotherapy? How many want the new shiny pill? Okay, you're gonna ruin our system. <laughs> you are gonna ruin our system, here's why. You're gonna take that pill the rest of your life. That's gonna have side effects. It's gonna cost you a lot of money. If you don't have the right mutation for it, I didn't. You're gonna do the traditional chemotherapy. It worked for me, it worked great for me. I didn't even have any side effects. I'm an outlier, total outlier. I never got sick. When they gave me the worst drug for four hours, they came in and said, how are you doing? I said, go away, Frodo's about to drop the ring in Mordor. <laughs> I have been watching this for four hours, do not interrupt me. I mean, what are the odds of that, right? What are the odds of that? But I, I thought I wanted the shiny new drug. I didn't need it. I didn't need it. As it was, three days of chemo per month for six months, those three days, $30,000 worth of medicine, $40,000 worth of medicine in those three days, every month for six months. I'm well insured. If I was Medicaid or Medicare, I might be able to do it. If you're in between Medicaid and you're not on Medicare and you're working for a bad employer, how are you gonna do that? That's a problem. That's a whole different problem than the science. That's society. That's very different. They both start with S, but it's a very different, very different question. That was, that was great. I, I, I would just like to uh, second that particular sentiment, I think, about uh, being active and supporting patients. I actually work on the board of uh, two patient advocacy groups. Uh, one here, Dr. Hankins, represents eye care, and another one, Hope Connections for Cancer, which is a, a local organization. And uh, both of those organizations are really driven to help provide that kind of support for cancer patients. Uh, at Hope Connections, I actually did a, a, a seminar not that long ago just on trying to help people understand uh, how to re research their disease on the internet. And the, kind of the title of my talk was, there, there is no Rosetta Stone for science. Great point, I've used that exact metaphor, not that there wasn't one, but that we needed one. Let me ask you a question. Why did you get into this? Well, I think that, that uh, part of it is, is related to the work that we did in, uh, in, in our business and as, we, as I was working on developing the technologies that came out of Johns Hopkins and my colleague, uh, uh, Tom August, had worked with uh, research and actually uh, in uh, uh, using the, the technology for uh, treating AML patients. So very compelling. So I'm very excited about that. And of course, you have family issues and uh, family members that are touched by cancer. And I think it's safe to say that uh, many of us, or all of us, have some family member that's been been touched by cancer. And so that's a big part of my drive. I think to do the patient advocacy. But I think it's just uh, it's a personal thing. But when you were their age and you were drinking a lot, why did you decide to get into this field? That's a good enough answer. It seemed like the thing to do. Um, which is how Loveless got into this. It seemed yes. like the right thing to do. Yes. No idea where it would go. No, no idea where it would go. If you waste time figuring out where it's going to go, change, your, change the subject. And you have no idea where it's going to go, but you have to start it. So, so the, uh, the, the patient aspect of this, I think, is really important. I know we talked a little bit about it uh, offline. And how do we see patients now then uh, kind of participating in clinical studies 
and and driving the clinical study process because it's, it's as you said you, know, you have your choice between the shiny new thing and the standard chemotherapy what if neither of those things fit you right well my favorite story um my friend jamie haywood started something called the als therapy development project because his brother got als in his 30s jamie was a brain scientist and was working with a Nobel laureate in Salk Institute, changed his whole life to start studying ALS. And after years of doing some phenomenal work in ALS, including publishing a paper in Nature magazine proving that 75 of the most important animal studies in ALS could not be replicated, he, his brother died one night because his respirator came out of his mouth. So Jamie started something else you've probably heard of called Patients Like Me, which is an online social network of patients who are willing to share their medical data online with each other, what drugs they're on, what their problem is, how they feel about it, why they stop taking the drug, if they have diarrhea, if they get sick, if they lose their hair. They want everybody else to know, here's my course of life, and if you have what I have, here's what you should think about. And they consent to patients like me aggregating all of that data and selling it to pharma because pharma wants to know why are people stopping taking our drug? And they find out that it makes them impotent or it makes them nauseous or any number of reasons that they never tell their doctor. Have you ever tried to call your doctor just to complain? It's hard enough just to call to ask him to look at something. You don't generally get on the phone and say, this drug's not making me feel so good. And he's going to say, what do you expect? It's a poison. All drugs are poison. And email, forget it. Email, forget it, right? So here's the fun part. The patient started screwing up the clinical trials by saying, hey, how many people are on the clinical trial for this new drug for ALS? And people would you know, say what they were doing. And Somebody would say, well, my pee is this color. What color is your pee? And then they would try to figure out which one was the placebo and which one was the drug. <laughs> because none of them wants to be on the placebo, even though it's critical for scientific proof that somebody's on the placebo. Although, you have to ask yourself, if the placebos are so darn good, why aren't we using them more often? Right? It's like the joke, if everybody loves the number two pencil, why is it still number two? <laughs> I don't know. Um, so the patients are starting to run the asylum, which they should. So here's an idea. Right now, clinical trials are designed by pointy-headed people in ivory towers who don't experience the other end of the needle. Like, I have glaucoma. I thought, well, maybe I should be in a clinical trial. I looked up some clinical trials that involve a spinal tap. <laughs> A spinal tap, and now I'm a drummer and I love the movie, but I really don't want a spinal tap for my glaucoma when I have two different eye drops and 10 other alternatives. Who would think of that? Somebody who's not getting a spinal tap would think of that. But here's the alternative. Why don't we have the patients design the trials and then put them out to bid to universities and companies and researchers and say, we will give you 5,000 patients willing to be in a trial that looks like this, with the endpoints that look like this, with the side effect medications that look like this, instead of you putting me in a trial and not giving me any medicine for the side effects like losing all my mucus lining, which happens a lot in radiation, and let the, spares, the scarce resource is the patient. Surplus resource is the researcher. Let the patients design the trials and tell the researchers, this is what we want to know. This is what we want to do. And then let people bid for it. Because guess what? A trial with thousands of patients already recruited is a very valuable thing. Just an idea, which I stole <laughs> from the former head of the NIH. So it ain't like somebody came up with it in a bar. This is a guy who's been doing this his whole life and said, you know what? We've got it exactly back. It's, it's the same thing. You ever read the book, What Would Google Do? Gosh, read that book, What Would Google Do? By Jeff, uh, I'll think of it. 
anyway, what would Google do is usually the opposite of what you would do, right? A restaurant that doesn't serve food. You bring your own food. You just want to eat in a social environment. You want to eat the food that you know is good. So you bring your food, you give it to the restaurant, they sit you down at a candlelit table, they wait on you, and they bring you your own food. <laughs> there are restaurants that do this, right? So that's what we should be doing. Patients are disrupting left, right, and center, and God bless them for doing this. I have one more question I want to ask before I come back to the closing, closing question. And that is, uh, our company, for example, is a small biotech company, and small biotech companies are big drivers of the big pharma's pipeline. So we're, we, we pull stuff out of academia and try and put it into a format and a clinical study to get some initial data, and then we look for help move things along. So there's, there's a multitude of small biotechs that are doing this. In fact, uh, quite uh, topically, I think uh, our company is working on glioblastoma now and have a very interesting opportunity in that area. We have a small clinical study that's going on. So how, do, uh, how does the, the organization and the initiative look at, at facilitating bringing in uh, these small biotechs into the larger community of accelerating yeah, so the cancer ecosystem, and you have to think of it as an ecosystem, has evolved um, imperfectly and very slowly. So after World War II, our favorite family movie is, and I'm sure it's yours too, is Galaxy Quest. <laughs> um, my, my daughter's ready to run from the room. <laughs> There's a moment in Galaxy Quest when Tim Allen, who played like, you know, the Star Trek captain, is being taken to a real starship by real aliens, but doesn't believe it. And he's been drunk all night and hung over, and he sits in the car, and they want to tell him the history of their planet. And he starts by saying, in the five million years before the great diaspora, and then Tim Allen, you know, comes out. So when I say after World War II, I know it sounds five million years ago, but there are people like you working in that system today. After World War II, there was a deal struck between the government and universities that the government would fund research. A deal that the Trump budget just tore to shreds, but don't worry, it's not gonna happen, but lack of historical knowledge goes a very short way. Um, and the, prior to World War II, corporations funded most research. The universities now got all their money after World War II from government giving grants that helped pay the bills at the universities. So, as a result, we had a lot of university academics studying stuff and studying stuff until finally, with the advent of biotechnology, you had some breakout companies coming out of universities like Amgen and Genentech that changed the world by using living things to develop a drug to treat cancer or diabetes or rheumatoid arthritis or whatever it was. So now you're asking people who study for a living to develop things for a living, and that didn't work out so well. So you needed to develop two cultures, the study culture and the do-it culture. And as we did that, initially Big Pharma, which had all the big chemistry places, realized that they weren't going to be able to sell blockbusters like Viagra and Lipitor forever because chemical blockbusters were never really blockbusters. They didn't help people nearly as much as we thought they did because everybody took them regardless of their biology. So now we get to where the small companies come up and they grab somebody from a university and they grab somebody from business and they say, we're going to work on something that we have enough money to do, enough people to do, but we're not doing everything and we're not trying to be a Pfizer or, or, or Bristol. We're just trying to do one thing or two things and we can change course if we have to and down the road, we'll find a partner to help us, if it works, get it to doctors, because that's not easy either. Doctors tend to prescribe the same medicine their entire career that they prescribed when they got out of med school. Think about that. Think what the implications would be if you're on birth control pills and your doctor wants to give you the same ones that he got when he got out of med school 20, 30 years ago. He'd be poisoning you, right? So. Now you've got all these small companies, you've still got all these mega companies, 
what's the relationship and how do we balance that out in our innovation environment? And the answer is more and more the big companies have realized they don't do research very well. They can't change directions. They can't hire people quickly for the new thing. And people who are doing the old thing don't change very well. So what they end up doing is partnering with small biotechs to take some of the risk out when they get to a certain point where they have a proof of concept that the drug will do something. And now they need to get to the expensive part of clinical trials when you're dealing with people. So we've now got these two cultures. We have the risk culture, which is where you live, and we have the marketing culture, which is where Pfizer and the big pharma companies live. Nobody can market anything better than Pfizer. The patient journey that I mentioned earlier from my perspective, prevention, detection, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, that's not the patient journey at a big pharma company. The patient journey at a big pharma company, are you ready? Starts with self-suspicion. I think I'm peeing too much. I think I'm losing my hair. I think something that's soft should be not soft. <laughs> I must have a problem. Self-suspicion. Where did you get the suspicion? From watching television. Right? If you see 20 ads in the Super Bowl about men who have to pee all the time, guess what? You have to pee all the time and you get on the drug to stop you. So self-suspicion, go to the doctor, get diagnosed, get prescribed, and then get harassed to continue refilling your prescription. That's the patient journey from the marketing side. That's not where I live, it's not where he lives, it's not where you live. We live on the, I have an unmet need, my disease is treatable, who's going to help me? If they help me figure it out, who's going to figure out how, what the drug is? And if you figure out the drug, how are you going to get it to me in a way I can afford it? That's the human being journey, not the market journey. And so in the current environment, we at the Biden Cancer Initiative, we work a lot with, I met with two people just this, today, who, small companies with big ideas, who have gotten to the point where they've got results and they can talk to the FDA, they can talk to the NCR, and they've got, and this is critical, partnerships with patient organizations from the people who need the solution, who will let them use their blood samples, their tissue samples, their patients, and let them do it in a way that they can partner. The Cystic Fibrosis Foundation pretty much knows every family in America that's got a kid with cystic fibrosis. I never knew anybody with cystic fibrosis after I got out of high school because they were all dead. I had a woman work for me 10 years ago. She was 30. She, I said, I mean, she wasn't 30, I'm sorry, she was like 25, 26. I brought her in my office. I said, tell me about your life. It doesn't take long. You're 25. She said, oh, well, I go to SUNY and I play rugby and all that. I said, that's cool, man. Get out of here. Next day, I'm on a phone call with the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, and she's listening in on the call. And after I hang up, she says, oh, by the way, here's that word again. I have cystic fibrosis. I said, back in my office. I said, it I said let me get this straight. I just asked you about your life, and you didn't even mention it. Do you realize that I don't know anybody your age who had cystic fibrosis from my hometown because they died at 14. You're 25 and your life expectancy now is 40. And it's not even on the top of your mind when somebody asks you, who are you? And that's progress because the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation raised money from all those families and invested it in a small biotech that got bigger called Vertex and when Vertex developed the first drug in 20 years to cure cystic fibrosis in a segment of the population, <coughs> cystic fibrosis got a check for their share of the royalties of that drug. They invested $150 million over 15 years. What did they get? $3.3 billion back, which is 20 years of donations to the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation from partnering by bringing patients, families who were doing anything for their kid to those trials. And that's why the small companies are the answer because patients don't do that with Pfizer. They do it with small companies that they can look in the eye 
Except, when I was at Pfizer, I said to Pfizer, you need to take money from the small foundations. Oh, we can't do that. We give them money. I said, yeah, you give them money to buy friends. Why don't we stop doing that? And they said, well, if we stop doing that, we won't have any friends. <laughs> I said, okay, okay, I won't fight that fight, but what if the rare disease groups want to pay you to develop a drug that otherwise nobody's working on. Well, we would do that. Now it's a priority for them. They get over $100 million a year from small foundations that want them to develop a drug for their rare disease. Culture, 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 culture. And small biotech has the right culture. Patient groups have the right culture. You have to hammer it into big pharma. And the innovation environment has to be that we have to make it easier for small biotech companies to raise money from people who care about those diseases. So when the government passed the Jobs Act, which was the crowdfunding bill that let people crowdfund for private companies for profit, I started a company with a few other people because we wanted to let people who care about individual diseases not just donate money, which is fine, but eventually you have to invest money. Let them invest $5,000, $10,000 into a small company that cannot get money from a VC because VCs don't take risks. And it was a great idea, and we totally failed because your government, the SEC, killed that bill by regulating it to death because they didn't think that people who weren't rich should be able to invest in private companies. You can invest in pot, booze, all kinds of the seven sins, lotteries that are run by the state government, and casinos run by the state government, until you are completely broken in debt. But your government will not let you invest in a private biotech company if you don't have a million dollars. That is just stupid. And it was a disaster that the Congress passed this law with the majority of both parties. And the SEC decided you weren't smart enough to do it, and the regulations made it pretty much impossible to do which is a bummer. But it will change, it will just take forever. <laughs> Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy The Social University. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.